We're in James chapter 1. There should be some Bibles around for you, or you can swipe up on your phone. But let's get to James chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 26 and 27 today. Now, we are in our series called The Awakening. And this series is about waking up and becoming who you are made to become. Waking up. Now, as a father, I have experienced laying down in deep sleep and one of my kids coming and prying my eye open while I am sleeping and whispering way too loudly in my eardrum to wake up. And this is not a pleasant experience. And this is essentially what James is doing in this book. As he's prying our eyes open saying, there's a life that's been passing you by and you're missing it. And in this life, now is your time to become who you're made to become. And that's what James is doing for us. So we're going to do that today. So I'm going to pry your eye open a bit. And we're going to be here doing this in the book of James 26. So here we go. If anyone thinks... He is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, the first point, empty religion. And what James does here is he speaks of both a good and true and right and pure religion and a false religion, an empty religion. And when he speaks of a true religion, here's what a true religion is. It's an outward expression of an inward spiritual awakening. There's inner health that's come alive from this relationship with God and then it pours out into the world into, through your actions. But an empty religion is a religion of which has outward expressions, but there's inward deadness. There's nothing there. It's empty. It's not alive. Dead. A dead religion. And recently, and and by the way, this has caused some major problems in the cause for Christ in the world today. Empty religion. People who are claiming something that are not what they're claiming. Now, that's what we're going to break, break down today. So recently, there was a pastor from a well-known, probably one of the biggest churches in the world, who was recently removed from his position for having multiple affairs. And there are stories like this from pastors who are abusing power, or they're doing whatever it is that they're doing, but they're getting removed. And what's happening is there's an outward expression of something that looks right on the outside, but inside, they're dead. So... And, and the problem is that the church feeds into this. So churches tend to be, and people tend to be attracted to big personalities, talented people, people who could draw a big, big crowd, and they keep feeding this monster that was once called the church. The church, the people, us, we ought to follow people of great character, not who can draw a crowd who don't care about drawing a crowd, who don't care about seeking out these positions of power, but simply want to do what God would want them to do. So I've heard it said that people who are really wise would never run 
for president. And the idea of it is, well, essentially what people are getting at by saying this is that the people who are the greatest of presidents, the people who are the greatest of leaders, are not the ones who are seeking out the position, but the ones who have great character and people keep annoying them, telling them, you should do this, you should do this, and you should do this, and finally they give in. And by the way, the Bible spends a lot of time warning us about leaders who outwardly look right, but inside, they're empty. But what about people who are normal churchgoers that aren't pastors? I, I can't tell you how many times I have met with someone who's given up on the church, and what has happened is that they have been hurt, they have been wounded, abused by someone within the church, by committed people who are graceless. People who know the Bible well, they show up every Sunday morning. They give 10% of their income to the church. They're in Bible studies. They're praying every single day. They're doing all the things that should be done, except their heart knows nothing of grace. They've learned to modify their behavior on the outside, in the church and in public, but in the private halls of their heart, they're graceless. Or, or this, people who will show grace to people who make them feel comfortable, that fit in. So this happens in churches all the time. Someone comes in that, that you know, they just have this perfect life. They have a few kids and they have a golden retriever. Of course, you need a golden retriever to have the perfect life. And they just do everything right. Well, those people are welcomed and you can be easily gracious to them. But if somebody walks into a church or into wherever and they have a different view of sexuality, or a different view of politics, or a different view of whatever, well, we might smile, but inside, we are rejecting them. And let me tell you this, people who are outsiders, who have been rejected all of their life, they could pick, on, pick this up so quickly. It's like, it's, <clears throat> if your religion is dead on the inside, you might put on a face, but people will spot it, especially people who've been wounded by people like that. There's like, there's an outward religious acceptance, but there's an inward rejection that oozes from our pores if we don't have the inside right. And that's what James talking, is ta talking about when he says that religion is worthless. To be worthless means that it's no, there's nothing to it. It's empty, fruitless, useless, powerless, and lacks truth. It appears that the person has found the truth, although inside it has never penetrated their heart. And James says this person's heart is being deceived. So you need to understand in the Bible, when it refers to the word heart, it is not primarily talking about the emotions, though it is talking about the emotions. But it's also talking about your heart is about the way that you think and what you think, and it's about your actions. And James is linking the heart throughout this whole letter to our actions. So the heart is your thinking, your feeling, and your actions. And the heart is controlled by whatever sits upon the throne of the heart. The heart is your control center. It's like a throne. And whatever you make, your king sits then upon the throne of your heart, and directs everything that you think, 
everything that you feel and all of your actions. So if your actions aren't lining up with what you say you believe, then you have a problem with what's sitting upon the throne of your heart. So you can say that you trust in the grace and acceptance of God, but if God is not sitting upon the throne of your heart, then, well, your life will not look very gracious to others and it will not look very accepting to others because something else is on the throne of your heart. And if we could look down upon the earth from God's view and see what he sees, he would see our hearts and he would see his people and he would see how we're just placing all of these false kings on the throne of our heart and letting them direct all that we do in our life. And even each city throughout the world has a heart and that heart has a king on the throne of that heart. So take Miami. Miami images king. And we would say, ah, I would never lower myself to that kind of thinking. And in New York, it's success. And we would say, I would never work that hard and neglect my family. Here we would say that. And in LA, it's fame. And we would say, I would never be so shallow and selfish. But here, God looks down upon our area and he sees a king too that is not him. He sees a king that is sneakier, maybe more dangerous than all those other kings, the king of comfort. That's what we have done. You could put anything on the throne of your heart, but what happens is if comfort is on the throne of your heart, well, somebody comes around you that maybe is going to make your life a little bit more uncomfortable. Maybe they're your neighbor. Maybe they've walked into the church and they don't fit in with everything that you think should be in the church and so, or everyone in the church, and so you outwardly might accept them, but inwardly you are rejecting them. You want them kind of to go away. But if they, if they fit the mold, you, oh, come on in. We're so glad that you're here. And you really authentically mean that because they make you comfortable and comfort is ruling your life. We all have something. It could be a lover, a career, our kids, approval, control, power. And you know what it is? It's your religion. And it's an empty religion. Because what sits upon the throne of your heart is powerless. And it surely is not powerful enough to get you through the difficulties that you're about to face in this life. James talks about this earlier in the book. He says, count it all joy. Listen to this. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. We're counting it joy. Why? He says, because the trial will transform you. But I promise you, that the trial will not transform you if you have a powerless idol or king on the throne of your heart. In fact, it will take you down. And you will find that you have this moral failure in your life. Or you have this emotional breakdown or a crisis of faith. And it's all because you had the wrong thing on the throne of your heart. Your emotional health and your actions are glaring realities of what sits upon the throne of your heart. And the problem that most of us have is we don't really trace back our actions to what is actually sitting upon the throne of our heart so it never gets removed. We, we, we modify our behavior, but we find this idol or this king ruling over our lives in different areas. We thought we got rid of the problem, but the problem just keeps showing itself up in different places until you remove the false king. And this brings us to our second point, the religion of the heart. So one way to tell if you have God on the throne of your heart is how you react 
when somebody points out your sin. You know, it's what, if, take something that you love doing, and someone tells you something that you're not so great about that thing that you love doing. That cuts you. It hurts. But something that hurts even worse is when someone points out your sin. And when they point it out, if you can't do what is the Bible calls repentance, then you have a problem upon what's on the throne of your heart. Because what is repentance? Well, it means you're hearing someone tell you something about a sin in your life, and you take it in, and you let it penetrate your heart, and you process it. And then you take that and you trace all the way back to what sits upon the throne of your heart. You recognize that there's something wrong, something that's sitting there that should not be there. And you remove that false king and you put God on that throne of your heart. That's what repentance is. And if, if you can't do that, well, you have a heart problem and a king problem. So when James talks about bridling your tongue, bridle your tongue back there. When James talks about bridling your tongue, he's connecting it back to what he said earlier about when our friends speak the truth of God's word to us, and we hear it, and we're not quick to speak, but we're, we are quick to listen and slow to speak. And what he's saying is our friends, we need friends like that. And if you, are, if you aren't bridling your tongue, it is because, well... You're blocking the words. Your tongue is fighting back. It's not hearing what your friends have to say to you. And we aren't good at doing this. We're not good at tracing our actions back, and we're not good at hearing. Now, why aren't we good at hearing? Because we're not good at repentance. Why aren't we good at repentance, though? Because when words come and attack your sin... It's also attacking the idol, the king, that the false king that sits upon the throne of your heart, and that king starts fighting back like a, cat, like, like a cornered bear. And so your tongue is not bridled, but you begin to attack the people who you feel like are attacking you, but actually they're being loving to you. Well, hopefully they are. And sure, people could say things in a way that you would rather them not say. And maybe it's because they have a false king on the throne of their heart, but it does not matter. You have a responsibility, if you are a Christian, to identify what's going, to listen to your friends, identify the idol on the throne of your heart, and have it removed. And if you're blessed enough to have a friend who has God on the throne of their heart, and they come and speak this to you boldly, they're also going to speak it in a way that is encouraging that is loving and bringing the very words of Scripture to bear so that then they become implanted, as verse 21 said, into your heart and your soul is then saved. And when they speak these words, God takes his rightful place on the throne of your heart. The God of what? The God of love, of justice, of mercy, of grace, and then what begins to happen is because now God is sitting on the throne of your heart, you begin to act the way he would act with his love and his mercy and his acceptance and also his justice. And what happens is then your heart turns into a wellspring where God sits there upon the throne of your heart and all of his love and his justice and his mercy are building up and they're continuing to build up until they have nowhere to go 
but to pour out into your life and into the way that you live. That is Christianity of the heart. And James then describes, gives a title to the God who sits upon the throne of your heart, and he gives him the title of Father. Our third point, the Father's throne. James says, true religion, pure religion, hasn't been defiled before God the Father. Meaning, the one who sits upon our throne, the throne of our heart is a king, but he's also your father at the same time. And if he is on the throne, and th- then that means our actions aren't defiled because we have our God, who is the Father, directing everything we do in this life. Christianity offers an intimacy with God that nothing else will offer you. We have a God who calls himself our Father and then sends his Son. This is what Christmas time is about. This is the incarnation. This is the coming. This is the advent. He's here. He has come for you. He sent his Son. And then by faith, listen to this, the Spirit of God then dwells within you. And as that happens, Romans 8 says, we live our lives like this. The spirit within us cries out the words, Abba, Father. The word Abba means Daddy. It's this grand intimacy that comes through faith. And all of you know all too well what it feels like to be outwardly accepted, but inwardly that person is rejecting you. You've all experienced it. And I want to tell you this. Every single person (coughs) in your life has done this to you at some point. Hold on. I'm getting over the coronavirus. I'm just kidding. Look, everyone... I have so distracted you by saying that. Come back to me. Everyone in your life has done this to you at some point. They aren't perfect in their love for you. And you have to deal with that reality. (coughs) Because if you don't deal with that reality, you're going to begin to put people on the throne of your heart. And God belongs there. And every single person in your life, if you put them on the throne of your heart, you will find them letting you down because they cannot love you the way that God loves you. Your earthly spouse, your kids, your friends will not love you perfectly. Your parents will not love you perfectly. Your earthly father will not love you perfectly. Your adoption by God the Father is the greatest news for all of you who have experienced rejection. And you all have. There's three kinds of earthly fathers. The good ones. Well, first, the bad ones who wound you. Then the good ones. But then what happens is they're good and you put them on the throne of your heart. And that becomes problematic. Or there's another type of good one, the third type. They're good. But they also know that they're not good enough. And so what they do is they point you to the better father. They point you to the better king. They go with you and they say, look, look son, look daughter, look Come with me. And they take you before God and they say to you, at some point, 
you have to let God adopt you. Come back to me, guys. At some point, you have to let God adopt you. Now, now look, that looks, I mean, that sounds painful. And it is. It's painful because here's why. You have a God, I mean, you have a father who loves you. And they have probably put you, uh, your earthly father, have probably put you on the throne of their heart. And you <clears throat> have probably put your father on the throne of your heart. This is the necessary and painful event that every Christian must go through. The ripping off of the father idol to let God the Father take his rightful place there. And once you have done this, James says, okay, now let's look at what your religion will look like now that you have the heavenly Father on the throne of your heart. This is the fourth point. It's like father, like son. So when James says, religion that is pure and undefiled is this, there's a colon there. I don't know if you saw that. And that colon means that everything he's about to say is what it looks like when the father is on the throne of your heart. In fact, it seems to me right now that the rest of James is him saying, here's what it looks like when the father is on the throne of your heart. So the question that you have to right now be asking yourself is this. If God stood where you stood, sat where you sat, even right now in this moment, what would you be thinking? How would you be feeling? And how would you be acting? So here's what James tells us. He starts off and he says, look, God is a father. So it would make sense that the first thing he would say you ought to do is to care for orphans. Now, if at the heart of being God is to be described as a father, it would make perfect sense that the first thing that James would tell you to do is to care for orphans. It would mean that you start looking around this world and you see orphans and it breaks your heart and you say something has to be done here and now because you're becoming like your father. You are your father's son. You are your father's daughter. Now, this doesn't mean that every single one of us should foster orphans or should adopt, but it does mean that every single one of us as a church ought to play a part in helping with people who are willing to foster and adopt. And I want to tell you this, the church should rally around these people, and they should support them socially and emotionally and financial if that is needed. Fostering and adopting is an incredibly difficult thing because what's happening is you are, take, you are adopting a child who has been wounded, probably in the foster care system. They've been abused and they've been neglected and they've been rejected. And they bring those wounds with them everywhere they go, which means that parents who are willing to foster and adopt are on a very slow and patient transformational process with those that they have adopted or fostered. And it's, it's a process that requires tons of love and patience and trust in God as, part, as those parents. So Corey and Juliet. So Corey is our audiovisual mastermind. And they have just started, they've just entered into the foster process to hope to adopt one day. And recently, 
far quicker than they were ready, two siblings were placed with them. And one of those siblings came with COVID. That's why they're not here today. Now, we as a church have a responsibility. If we're going to honor what the, James is telling us, and if the Father is on the throne of our hearts, it's going to cause us to say, man, we need to come behind them because their situation is, this is going to, they need us. And so we say, let's come behind them. And that's what we do. As a church, we do what our Father would do. Now, also with the widows. Now, widows, well, their father typically is passed away. And their spouse is gone. The point is that they're lonely. And a father looks upon lonely people, and he cares for them well. So we were planning on doing this. I was very excited about it. We were going to be going into assisted li- an assisted living facility, and we were going to have worship services there once a month, and we were all going to begin to be friends with the people there, and we were going to just be friends with them because it's a lonely place to be. But COVID came, and we weren't able to get in. But we've got to keep our eyes out, like our Father would, recognizing those in need and meeting that need. So that's the first thing James tells us to do, to care for orphans and widows. Then the very next thing he says is, keep yourself unstained from the world. So it's like, at first he's like, okay, look out and do something. But then he's saying, if the Father's on the throne of your heart, you're going to look out and you're going to say, but I should not do that. The stuff that's happening in the world, I should not be doing that. So it's about your moral compass. Now, I want to point something out that very few people see. I've been wanting to tell you this for like three months, but none of the Bible verses were calling for it, so I'm not going to put something in the Bible verses that aren't there. So, it's here now. So here's what I want to tell you. I want to look at politics, personality, and a fatherless society. And when I say a fatherless society, I'm talking about God our Father not being on the throne of our hearts. So in politics, and I'm speaking in generalities here, so don't say, yeah, but, because it's generality, so just go with me. Progressive people tend to be focused on social justice issues. Caring for the poor, the widows, orphans, that's, if you're progressive, that's your focus. If you're conservative, your focus is on morality. That becomes like an important thing for you. Generally speaking, now look at what James has just told us. We ought to focus on both. So, okay, here's the fascinating thing. There's work that's being done about, around personality types. And what they have found is that someone, if they are born, this is, you're born with this personality type with high in openness, you're more likely to be progressive. And if you are born being high in conscientiousness, you're more likely to be conservative. So someone who is born with high in openness, they're creative, they think outside of the box, whatever the current system is, they want to break out of it. These types of people are needed at times. So the ending of slavery, progressive people led the way. Openness, people who are high in openness led the way. The Reformation. When there was corruption in the church, it was people who were high in openness who led the way. People who are high in openness are needed at times. 
But if someone is born with high in conscientiousness, it means they're hardworking and they're orderly. They like to set up a structure. They, they like to know a path and a plan forward. And these people are highly needed at times because the people who are high in openness create a bunch of chaos, and then the people who are high in conscientiousness come in and bring some order out of the chaos that was brought. Now, throughout history, we can see that we need times where either the people who are high in openness are right or the people who are high in conscientiousness are right. Now, I want to show you that when God the Father is not sitting on the throne of your heart, it leads to massive problems when it comes to have to do with personality and politics. So, so watch. There was a few philosophers and psychologists who pre- essentially predicted the Holocaust would happen 50 years before it happened. It's fascinating. And here's what they said. Our society is becoming more and more fatherless, meaning God is being removed from the throne of our hearts. And what they said is, if you live in a society where God is dead, you have just robbed that society of a value system and a structure that they understood. And because those values have been pulled away from them, what's going to happen is they're going to look... The world is too complicated for us to figure out what should we value. So, So the society will say... The political powers need to tell us what we should value. And then what will happen is anyone that operates outside of those political values that have been put upon the society will either be thrown in jail or killed. And this is what led to millions of deaths in Germany and Soviet Union and in China. Now, here's what, what does that have to do with us today? It has everything to do with us. Because if God is being removed from the throne of our hearts, where are we going to get our values from? Well, if these guys are right, we're going to turn to the political party that best lines up with our personality that we were born with. That's going to be telling you what to value, which means we're not going to know how to look out into the world like our father would. We're going to look out into the world like our political party would. We're not going to look like people who know the Bible well. We're going to look like people who, are, who have our political parties as our king, not as our God as our king. And so what will happen? Well, we won't know when it's time to challenge the current system. And we won't look out into the world and say, whoa, the moral compass has shifted and this is not good. We need to come back because we're going to be fighting and vilifying the other side. But if you will put God on the throne of your heart, you will look out into the world and you will act the way he would act. And you would think the way he would think. And you would feel about the situations the same way that he would feel. Stop trying to figure out your politics and figure out who's on the throne of your heart and put God there, put Christ there. And then you will know your way forward. And I'm telling you, if we don't do this, and it's not being done, it's a tragedy. If we don't do this, what happens is we will produce churches that are only focused in on social justice issues, or we will produce churches that are only focused in on morality. But God is focused in on both. 
And I'm going to tell you, the climate of churches today is exactly this. There are churches that are primarily focused in on social justice, or there are churches that are primarily focused in on morality, and that, is, that means that we have a major problem upon what is on the throne of our hearts in the church. We have to be honest that God is not sitting on the throne of our hearts. And they've been filled with these false and phony gods. And your heart's prone to it. You seek, I do, comfort, money, sex, success, love, approval, control, more than you seek God. You know you do it. And these false kings are corrupting your heart. And they are not letting go of the armchairs on the throne of your heart. I mean, they are gripping it, and they do not want to leave, and they will not leave. You need something more powerful than them, and it is not you. And this is where our hero comes in. This is where our older brother comes in. So Jesus, the perfect, undefiled son of God, who was unstained from the world, Christmas time breaks in. He comes perfect. He was the only one to walk the face of the earth that had a right to not bridle his tongue, but to speak. But do you know what it says in Isaiah 53? He opened not his mouth. The ones that he came to save, the ones who mocked him, spit on him, and killed him on the cross, he was a lamb led to the slaughter, and he remained silent. The perfect son killed by the ones he came to save. The idol worshipers. All of us. But it was his plan all along. Because do you know what happened on the cross? You know what he did? He gathered up. He ripped off all of the idols that are sitting on the thrones of our hearts. He be, it says he literally became sin. Which means he's taking these idols that are on the throne of your hearts and he's gripping them. And on the cross, when he is killed and when he is crushed, your false and phony gods are killed and crushed with him. And as those dead kings lay lifeless, he claims his glory and his power and he rises from the grave. So that he and his father can then now sit upon the throne of your heart. Give him your heart. Let him claim his kingship over it. And he will be a father that teaches you how to think and how to act and how to feel. And you will go out into the world like this spring of life that's welling up in you because it's him who's in you. And you will begin to act as your father would act. You'll begin to think as your father will think. And you will look at people and you will feel love for them just the same way that your father feels love for you. Jesus became an orphan so that we could become adopted sons and daughters of God. And that is the good news. Let me pray for us. God, we pray that you would create in us a clean heart. Renew the spirit that you have given us within us so that our spirits might cry out to you. Father, teach me. Father, how should I live this life? God, give us hearts and souls that seek after you. And God, we do ask that you would rip off the idols of our hearts. And you would 
claim your rightful place. God, come and be our Father and our King. God, we need your help. And we want to now then be people who look around at the world and look at the world like you, our Father, would see the world. So help us do that. Help us care for orphans and widows and help us remain unstained by the world. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.